Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 2nd of June, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Well, it's us. It is just us. Uh, but, uh, well, lots going on. And uh, we begin with uh, the Vaccine Confidence Summit, Global Vaccine Confidence Summit, no less, happening today. Lots of speakers confirmed. Matt Hancock, of course. Well, you'll see them on screen. Uh, uh, even Mr. Fauci is in here. But anyway, this is uh, the UK government inspired. Uh, it's the world's first global vaccine confidence summit. It's an, in an effort to drive vaccine uptake in the fight against COVID, uh, according to the government. Misinformation, they say, continues to pose one of the biggest threats to global recovery from the pandemic uh, by damaging perceptions of the importance, safety and effectiveness of vaccines. Uh, the UK is working throughout our G7 presidency this year to improve access to coronavirus vaccines uh, and uh, treatments and tests around the world. And vaccine confidence is a key part of that. Um, so they're getting all these people together to have a quick chat about it. Uh, here's what uh, 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 Nadim Zahawi, otherwise known as Anton LaVey, uh, our vaccines minister, had to say. Vaccines are the root out of the pandemic and nobody is safe until we're all safe, Brian. So uh, I hope that makes you feel better. But nobody is safe until we're, until we're all safe. So I think that's I think that could be taken as a threat. Um, I don't know what. Well, I was going to say I don't know what these people are up to, but I think we do know what they're up to. And probably the Anton LaVey description, Mike, is particularly uh, pertinent. Um, but uh, you any thoughts on why they need to do this, feel the need to do this? I mean, clearly they feel that there is... Uh, uh, hesitancy doesn't go quite far enough. I think they know there's a backlash. Mm. I think we can call hesitancy a proper backlash into the safety of vaccines. Now, over the uh, past week, the UK column has been trying to dig into, to delve into or probe, as the BBC would say, um, how the vaccine safety system actually works. And we have to admit today that despite all the effort that we've put into it, we still don't fully know what the system is that the government has set up to uh, protect the safety of people having vaccinations. But let's take you into a little bit of the uh, mire of how this system works. Um, so we'll uh, draw your attention to this document, which is the NHS COVID-19 Vaccine Programme Standard Operating Procedure. This is an important document because, of course, this is the document that admits there's going to be adverse uh, vaccine adverse reactions. It says that uh, these should be logged in through the Clinical Advice and Response Service. And as you'll see on the right of your screen, there's a yellow block and it said, says that yellow card reports must be submitted into the MHRA. So that's the theory of the system, but let's put some uh, names and faces on the screen and see how we get on. We're going to call it the vaccine safety maze. And of course, uh, we've got to put June Rain in, Dr. June Rain uh, in the top. And we're going to have to call her the vaccine poacher and gamekeeper, as I think we can show. Now, the first um, body we're going to put up is the National Quality Board. What this is exactly, we don't know, because as we'll see in a minute, it's still being formed. Um, but this one is quite important here because this is the um, national patient. Uh, let me just uh, call that up on the second screen here. National Patient Safety thank, Alerts. Uh, thank you, Mike. National Patient Safety Alerts. And um, they have got some... Uh, 
terms of reference. That's always encouraging. You can see that they roughly exist. Going to bring in this man, Michael Brody. Now, uh, he's the chief executive of Public Health England, so you'd certainly expect that he's got some responsibilities with patient safety. What those are exactly, we're not too sure. But the good thing is he's got a foot in another camp uh, because he's actually involved with NHS Business Services Authority. And we're pretty sure that uh, with that second foot in the other camp, He's responsible for the reporting system. So when you call 119 to sort out your vaccine, you're effectively coming through to his department. We think that's how it works. And of course, we've already shown with uh, recorded telephone conversations that some of his staff are giving some fairly sus suspect advice with regard to vaccine adverse reactions. So let's come on through. Uh, we've got the regional clinical advice uh, service here. We're not too sure what this one does. So if anybody out there can help us with exactly where this fits in, we'd like to know. Uh, we've of course got the Joint Committee on vaccina Vaccination and Immunisation. Uh, this involves a lot of names, who they are, we can have a look at in a minute, what they do exactly, well who knows, what their allegiances are, we certainly don't know at all. And this one we, we need to bring in, um, which we're going to have a look at in more detail in a minute. Um, so that's the M MBSC, um, which has got quite an important role, as, as you'll see in a moment. That's a laboratory. Uh, this gentleman is pretty interesting. He's Dr. Aidan Fowler. He's the National Director of Patient Safety England. So at this point, you would think you've actually pinned down the person responsible for patient safety. But as you can see in the yellow uh, text underneath, he's actually on secondment to Chris Whitty. So has he been replaced? Has he got somebody on secondment to his role there? Um, doesn't seem, seem so. It just seems that the man responsible for patient safety is now working for the man who's pushing out the vaccines as fast as he can get them out. Okay. Um, but that just might be my take on it. Uh, this one uh, has come onto the uh, playing field recently, which we find fascinating. It's the Healthcare Safety Investigation Branch. It's funded by the Department of Health. It's hosted by NHS and NHS England and NHS Improvement. But Mike, you'll be relieved to know that it is fully independent. And uh, it is supposed to be investigating cases of where patient safety has been breached. I've read one of their reports and I have to say it wasn't worth the paper it was written on. But this just can't be right, Brian, because we've got all these organisations and people involved with safety and surely not a single yellow card report should be going uninvestigated under these circumstances. Well, one would have thought so, but the picture that we're building is that far from none of, uh, some, of some of them haven't been investigating, none of them are being investigated. And if they are being investigated, we don't know who, who by and we don't know where their reports are going. But let's follow on through this because it's a very murky pond. Here's Dr. Aidan Fowler. And this was a report back in April 2018 about the good work he was doing in NHS improvement. And as we say, he is the National Director of Patient Safety. But who's he working for? Straight to Chris Whitty. So we'll just flag it up again. Where's the independent impartial input for patient safety? We don't think there is any. So here's the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation. Whole list of names allow our readers and uh, viewers to go through and have a look at these. But of course, they've all got various interests because 
some of them, for example, Dr. Rebecca Cordry, our Public Health England, Dr. Kevin Brown, Public Health England. But then we've got a lot of uh, professors working at various universities, Oxford, Bristol, and indeed Imperial College, Professor Simon Kroll. So how do we know who's independent, Mike? Who is working for the big pharma organizations in developing the vaccines? Who is watching out for patient safety? We don't know. Um, they recognize there's conflicts of interest though. And as it says at the bottom, in order to prevent any perceived conflict of interest, it was agreed that JCVI chair, Professor Andrew Pollard, who's involved in the development of SARS-CoV-2 vaccine at Oxford, would recuse himself, stand down, from all JCVI COVID-19 meetings. Well, he gets a mention, um, are there other conflicts of interest that we don't know about? Well, we're not too sure. Mm. On to the next one here. Now, this is where it gets interesting because we're into the, um, basically the uh, National Patient Safety Alerting Committee. And what we want to flag up here is that in the middle of that, of this, should be able to highlight it here, you're going to find June Rain herself and another member of MHRA. So sitting in the middle of the safety committee is the MHRA, which is sucking in all the yellow card data upon which nothing is being done or with which nothing's being done. Yes, can I just clarify that the acronym for this is NAPSAC? I mean, this doesn't seem like a very serious, uh, that like they're taking this very seriously. Well, I can't find anything in this material, Mike, that is taking patient safety serious. Um, but let's have a look at this uh, comment here. This is about the scope of NAPSAC. And it says, note the language, NAPSAC would operate in England only and efforts to align alerts across the UK would continue to be led by MHRA in the broad sense. So what we learn from this is that this committee is, is not yet fully formed and in fact, the uh, onus is, is still being uh, given to MHRA. So this is why I can say that MHRA is the poacher and gamekeeper. It's promoting and effectively helping to sell the vaccines. But here it is sitting in the middle of a body which is supposedly looking at vaccine safety. If we move on through, uh, this is the body that... Um, they, uh, that NAPSAC should be reporting to, the NHS National Quality Board. Uh, quite fascinating because if you look online, the last board meetings published are the 9th of December 2019. So at the moment that we've got a pandemic, apparently we've got hundreds of thousands of people dying, we've got vaccines, we've got vaccine adverse effects, uh, nothing from the board responsible for overseeing the organisation responsible for patient safety. And I thought it was significant that in this meeting back in uh, 2019, December 2019, uh, we only get a 30 minute mention of patient safety right down at the bottom. So it was last on the list of their priorities. There is an NHS patient safety strategy, you'll be uh, glad to hear. Uh, encourage people to go and look at this. Now, this came into force in July 2019, so this should be running, but of course, it's effectively been overtaken by COVID-19. Um, but it's a chilling document because every time 
deaths are mentioned, let's say we could save 20 deaths, it will say, well, we need to save 20 deaths because we can save 16 million. We need to save uh, six, uh, 23 deaths because we can save 12 million. So each death that could be saved is equated to money that the NHS could save. Oh, I see, pounds, right, okay, gotcha. Yeah. Yep. So uh, this is just a general um, NHS board meeting uh, across a number of boards and together with NHS improvement. Here we can see name after name after name. And my point would be that when we get so many individuals, who is actually in charge, who's running, who's making the decisions, we've no idea. But I think we can say against these people, patient safety, what is that? Now, let's put in the uh, final catalyst. And uh, we've got to jump back here to uh, 2017 when Bill Gates put out in his own notes, his own blog site, uh, preparing for the next epidemic, a first step. And he says a new organization will help accelerate the development of vaccines uh, that we will need to contain future outbreaks. And if you get into the text, and we'll do this very briefly to uh, save time, uh, the bottom here, he says this, that's why I'm excited this week as the World Economic Forum in Davos uh, to participate in the launch of a new organization that will help the world get ready for future epidemics. Backed by the governments of Norway, India, Japan, and Germany, along with the Wellcome Trust and our foundation, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations, CEPI, will invest in innovations to, quote, accelerate the development of vaccines will need to contain outbreaks. And in the beginning, he said, we can't be sure about when these outbreaks are going to occur, but we've set up this organization so that we're primed um, to deal with them. It then says that CEPI will focus on vaccine development, and this is a critical part of getting prepared for whatever pathogens threaten us next. So he's a very perceptive man. He's got the Gates crystal ball, and he seems to know what's coming in the future. But this is the uh, real kicker, because he says at the same time, CEPI will work to minimise regulatory hurdles that further delay the deployment of vaccines. And I'm going to put it to our audience today, Mike, that when he's talking about minimising regulatory hurdles, what he's actually talking about is removing problems like vaccine adverse effects, which, of course, if properly reported, would stop the whole vaccination programme dead in its tracks. So if we summarise this, uh, we just do it very simply. Have a look at the Bill Gates blog yourself. Uh, CEPI has funded the very lab which MHRA is using in order to evaluate vaccines. So Bill Gates, who said that we need to remove the regulatory hurdles, is also now funding via CEPI the very laboratory being used by MHRA to evaluate how the vaccines are performing. Mm. This is all independent, Mike, of yes. course. So we're going to pop in uh, Dr. June Rain there, and we're going to highlight for our audience that uh, what's actually happening is that the MHRA is collecting vaccine adverse reactions via the yellow card data. Those simply go into um, the big pharmaceutical databases, 
so they're not being collected in order to protect the safety of the public. That is how it appears to us from evaluating the data that we've just shown on screen. And we'll add to that if anybody can help with their own research or perhaps you're in the NHS working in some of these departments, we'd like to know more information from you. Um, and just as an aside related to what Brian's just presented, I uh, just wanted to remind everybody this is a press release from Moderna in 2013 uh, because uh, it was DARPA which uh, gave them $25 million to begin the process of developing mRNA therapeutics uh, and we're seeing uh, the results of that now. Okay, let's move on then. Last night, uh, Channel 4, uh, well, they broadcast the anti-vax conspiracy. This was a 90-minute documentary. It was supposed to be, well, look at what they say about it. Who are the people behind the international anti-COVID vaccine movement and why are they doing it? This journey inside the astonishing world of the anti-vaxxers finds out. So what did they find out? Uh, well, let's have a look at some of the key points here. Uh, they began by targeting Piers Corbyn, brother of Jeremy Corbyn, of course. Uh, and, uh, well, they attempted to make him look silly, uh, but they really didn't have anything of substance there at all. Uh, it was a bit of clever editing, but frankly, they couldn't pull anything out about him, uh, which was going to uh, make him look uh, anything other than he is, which is a, a very capable campaigner. But anyway. And scientist in his own right. Yes, indeed. Uh, I do apologize for the typographical error on this. Uh, they then moved on to Andrew Wakefield, uh, who was the main target of the program. Um, and uh, they, of course, did the usual thing rinse, repeat all the old criticisms. There was nothing new here, nothing to see. Uh, so uh, move along. Uh, except they rolled, a so uh, rolled out a so called financial investigator. Uh, and who then failed to actually provide any information about the millions of dollars that they were alleging, uh, any real information about the millions of dollars that they were alleging Andrew Wakefield was making out of his uh, uh, activities. Um, and in fact, this financial investigator's only real contribution was to exhibit unbelievable jealousy over Wakefield's relationship with Ella McPherson. Uh, it, was, it was pathetic, actually. It really was pathetic. Uh, then they had the secondary target, of course, Del Bigtree, the producer who produced uh, the Vaxxed uh, movie, the Max Vaxxed documentary. Uh, and, uh, uh, well, they went through a history of Vaxxed. They were talking about the Vaxxed bus that was, uh, because, of course, Vaxxed was effectively banned in the United States. So they drove around the, the uh, United States in a bus and showed uh, the film locally. Uh, but they focused on a lone protester, quite a sad character in his own right. Uh, who drove around the United States following the bus with a placard uh, and seemed to be the only protester against the uh, the vaxxed uh, movie as it was going around. Uh, and they also mentioned other uh, people like Dr. McCullough, RFK Jr., Alex Jones. Uh, and really, uh, Brian, I have to say that at the end of the day, there was nothing to see there. They, If that was the best that they could do to expose the... Uh, so-called global conspiracy of anti-vaccination, um, then really they've got nothing uh, to show. And it was a bit pathetic. That certainly wasn't worth watching for an hour and a half. Desperation, Mike, I oh, think. But, uh, and and we it, didn't get a mention. No, no, That's we the biggest gripe. No, well, indeed, yes, they should try harder. No, it, it, it wasn't even about desperation, Brian, uh, in, this, in the sense that... that uh, my point is they could not find a single thing that they could actually do that would actually that would sort of discredit anybody in this 
uh, to the degree that that the average person would think that this was a disgraceful uh, this yeah. was disgraceful activity. So it was it was as bad, if not worse, than the Mayday series that w attempted to discredit Vanessa Bailey and and the various other people working with her. So uh, really, mainstream media must do better. Yeah, I think so. Now on Monday, I I mentioned uh, the excellent video from the Saturday protests up in London. The, a video that was taken by Resistance GB. Uh, there was a particular clip that I thought uh, our audience would be very interested in, an Indian gentleman talking in, in amongst that crowd about what was really happening in India. I'm very pleased that we've got the clip, so we're going to play that for you now. Let's listen to what this man has to say. Sorry about that, that's the wrong one. Uh, I do apologize. Um, sorry. Um, okay. Uh, okay. Well, obviously, that's not quite sure about what's going on clip. here. Uh, let's move to try it, this one. Where food comes, 
globally and you will all starve to death if you don't protest and wake up to this the plan is more you hide under your bed in the uh, in the fear of covid they will get you in your house there is no running away from this uh, fanatic system the idea remains lockdown and vaccination are a political program of genocide you need to oppose it there is no hiding away from this system Right, so I'm going to apologise for the mix-up there, but uh, no, we well we we, we got, got it in the end, Mike. So that's absolutely fine. So a very big thank you to Resistance GB for that clip, and encourage people to go and look at other material that they they've got up, because um, it's really good, really good quality. Uh, what was astonishing there was amongst all those people that that uh, uh, dialogue dialogue took place, a lot of information coming across about what was happening in. India and the tie-in with uh, problems with people couldn't get out to feed themselves. And other people have said to us that amongst the crowd on Saturday in London, there were all sorts of, of very measured, informative discussions going on like this one. So it wasn't just there was a crowd of people on the streets. Amongst that million people, there were a great many people who were extremely well informed. Let's put a bit of background to what that gentleman was talking about. We decided to have a look to see how the BBC reported it. So here we are, India's poorest, fear hunger may kill us before coronavirus. So the key opening uh, uh, paragraph was India has been put into lockdown to halt the spread of the coronavirus outbreak. People have been told to stay indoors, but for many daily wage earners, this is not an option. The BBC's Vikas Pandey finds out how they were coping in the days leading up to Tuesday's announcement. And then, uh, okay, we're obviously having interesting days as far as this goes. Let's see if I can bring this back on slide. Apologies for that. Um, we'll see whether it's going to come up now. No, it isn't. Okay, I beg your pardon for that. Uh, essentially, uh, what uh, the BBC is showing is that there is huge concern amongst people who are living on subsistence wages in India. And if they're shut up indoors, they might have one day's food or two days food. But after that, their family is not going to be able to feed itself uh, because the uh, income isn't there. If we pop on to the journalist, this is Vikas Pandey, who actually produced the report. What he does at the very end of his report is this. Uh, he has a quote from a Vinod Prajapati who says, I know everything about coronavirus. It's very dangerous. The whole world is struggling. Most people who can afford and have a place to stay are indoors. But for people like us, the choice is between safety and hunger. What should we pick? Well, the, the BBC just doesn't investigate this. It doesn't get into the to the real damage that the lockdown is doing. It simply ends the article by pushing out another statement, which is about the fear of the COVID-19 pandemic. And there is no detail about the scale of the starvation in India, which the man on the London street was clearly very concerned about. Mm. So we're going to put this down to more skewed BBC reporting, and we're going to give the BBC a special mention at the end of today's news. But uh, if BBC is bad, uh, let's have a look at what happened to this lady, Bev Turner. Now, a big thank you to uh, uh, one of our viewers for sending in this. Um, obviously, this is part of her Twitter page. But the key thing was a tweet that she put out. And the eagle-eyed viewer had noticed that there was a, 
uh, part of a table there, which looked a bit familiar, Mike. Uh, yeah, I believe that has come from yellowcard.ukcolumn.org. Uh, that is where it's come from. So we've got Bev Turner as a journalist, broadcaster, author of three books, uh, podcaster, um, likes a drink, but says she believes in the freedom of choice. And she tweeted this out. Now, it took another viewer to uh, link her in with something else going on here. Dermot O'Leary involved in heated clash with anti-vaxxer guests this morning. Uh, this morning, presenter Dermot O'Leary and guest Beverly Turner were involved in a heated clash after the guests claimed younger people should reject the COVID vaccination. So they're attacking their own now because they're calling this journalist an anti-vaxxer. They don't mention her journalistic credentials. No, because as we're going to see later in the news, they're now going to go for anybody. There should be a little video clip here. I should keep my fingers crossed on this one. The finest minds of science have, in, in an extraordinarily in short amount of time, have come up with this vaccine. It's proven that it's working statistically. Why are you so cynical about it? We have no long-term data. We have no long-term data. But we data. don't have a chance to have long-term data because we, we have this virus we do, because killing people people around the whole world. No, so we, no. We don't have, the, we don't, we have, we don't have that luxury, surely. Uh, we can disagree, no, we but at least we can still be fit. You can't disagree on the science. It, is, it, is, it does not stop you contracting or passing it on the virus. It does. It listen, does not. Listen. Uh, so, so he lied there because it does not. She's correct, it does not. Uh, she's correct. Before we get there, Mike, we just wanted to say that uh, on the mirror uh, online, that was the length of the clip. So we haven't cut that clip or edited it. That was all the time that the Daily Mirror gave to a journalist who was quite legitimately questioning data over uh, vaccines and vaccine safety. Mm. Uh, if you watch that little clip, it quickly went to a second uh, video which I'm just going to bring up on screen very briefly to show how the, the mirror was attempting to divert the reader away from the whole issue of vaccine safety. Sorry, 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 sorry. We're, we're having an interesting, we're having an interesting <laughs> today one. in the yeah. video field. So essentially, if you attempted to watch the clip or you thought you were going to see some detail of a journalist challenging over vaccine adverse effect, very quickly the mirror skewed it into a new video, which was showing some youngsters having a pretty vicious punch up in a swimming pool. And of course, we call this clickbait. And the aim is to get the viewer away from the subject of vaccine and onto a completely different um, uh, subject, albeit of concern. Mm. So let's come back and have a look at what happened on screen. Uh, so this is Dermot O'Leary. Um, this is one of the pictures that the Mirror decided to use. So we thought we'd take it up on that. But he pointed, he said this, the finest minds that science have. Well, is that correct? We've no way of knowing, Mike, because mm -hmm. no other science, scientist has been allowed to challenge these people in an extraordinary short amount of time come up with this vaccine, it's proven it's working statistically, why are you so cynical? So that was your point, because essentially there is no evidence 
uh, to support the statement that he's making there. He is simply repeating what he's heard on the BBC and his own news channel, probably. So if we go on, he says, we don't have a chance uh, to have long-term data, which is what the lady mentioned. We don't have a chance to have long-term data because we have this virus that's killing people around the whole world. So we've got a serious um, uh, virus. We've got a vaccine that's being pumped out, but we haven't got any long-term data and he can't really think it through. So it's created an extraordinary short space of time. And then he admits there's no long-term safety data, but he can't understand why somebody would challenge this. He goes on to say, we don't have that luxury. Why are you so skeptical about the whole thing? So safety data is not a critical issue as far as he's concerned, Mike. It's just a luxury, even when we, we know that we're going to, to end up vaccinating our children. So this, this man is simply not thinking properly. Well, indeed. And uh, he, you know, he's, he has clearly uh, totally internalized uh, the 130,000 deaths number. And for him, that is all that counts. He hasn't considered the fact, the simple fact, as an example, that those deaths are based on the idea that uh, each one of them is counted as a COVID death if, that, if a person has uh, tested positive with an unreliable PCR test within 28 eight days of their death yeah. following the test, if they die 28 days following the test. There's no such consideration for people that have died within 28 days of receiving, having received the vaccine. So the, 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 the terms are different in each case. The, the PCR test is un, completely unreliable. On the other hand, we know 100% that somebody has received the vaccine. Now, the, the, the argument will be, well, there's no uh, evidence to show a, a, a connection between the vaccination and the death. Our point here has been from the beginning, nobody is actually doing any analysis of this. Nobody is uh, assessing the deaths. Nobody is actually counting the deaths properly. Uh, and so um, under those circumstances, the precautionary principle should be used, but it's been thrown out. It has. Now, I just, I like to say, I, I have not seen the full interview, so perhaps she does. But I, my point is that what she needed to say to him is, have you seen the yellow card vaccine adverse reaction data yourself? That's the question that she should have asked and put the, the evidence in front of him. That's government evidence. So I don't know whether she did that or not. Let's have a look at how the Mirror then further attempted to skew this reporting, because when you got to comments under the article, this was the first one up uh, by Barbecue. I've had both jabs and are very happy. It doesn't bother me if people don't want it, because if they get COVID, they're risking themselves and other people that refuse the jab. So let them get on with it. Now, what I noticed here was this, which uh, will blow up so people can see it, that this has got an editor's pick next to it, which I thought was rather interesting because uh, we're straight back in with the pro-vaccine line. Uh, however, the next comment uh, also had the editor's pick next to it. And Abman said her and thousands of others are the reason why this country is struggling to get out of lockdown. Now it's getting nasty. Mm -hmm. And this is the editor's pick. And the, and the third one, and this is the sequence they came up, so I haven't altered the position of these, uh, is Naylor 28. Uh, why do shows like This Morning even give this irrelevant woman airtime? All she does is spread how dangerous beliefs 
sorry, her dangerous beliefs and views, uh, irresponsible and damaging. So all of those selected by the editor of The Mirror. Uh, this is the editor-in-chief, Lloyd Embley. So I thought we'd bring him up on screen. Uh, there's some contact details if any of our viewers would like to challenge him on this. Uh, but it's quite clear that this is an attempt to put out the pro-vaccine message by The Mirror. And if you have a look at um, what they <clears throat> say about themselves, of course, there's lots of ethics. And you'll pick up on this one, Mike, because they're a launch partner, <clears throat> excuse me, of the Trust Project. And uh, for people still not aware of that, well, this is what they have to say about themselves. We help over half a billion people easily assess the integrity of news worldwide. And we're growing fast. And we've got a little video clip where they're talking a bit about themselves. Yeah, here we go. Hopefully. I believe that joining the Trust Project is a great opportunity to strengthen newspaper relationship with, uh, with its reader. And it's also a great way for newsrooms to understand that journalism today is a conversation and not a lecture. I just really was able to improve our site as well as becoming part of a global initiative that we feel like we're, we're now a member of something bigger than just ourselves. in many of the places where we have publications, the 2020 uh, general election is going to be a big deal. And I think it positions us really well to, again, just hammer home to our audience and anybody who comes across the journalism we produce that uh, we're, we're a place that can be trusted to produce fact-based, accurate uh, accountability reporting. And so the timing just couldn't be better. And so we're really thrilled to be a part of it. Signing up to the Trust Project gave us the opportunity to embed those values and our users now see it every day with the T in all our articles. We can be more transparent in what we do in the journalism that we produce um, which is why putting in place things like indicators so it's clear when people read content uh, on our website and our app what they are reading if it's an opinion piece if it's something that is an explainer piece if it's something which is analytical how that defines from straight news stories look for the trust uh, project mark look for news organizations like ours like others um, that are committed to the facts I can say that generally the introduction of the indicator is valued very, very positively. And, and, they, and they impacted in, uh, in some experiment also to promote uh, the, our uh, being part of the trust project, even as a reason for subscription. And even from this point of view, we have been some positive uh, answers from Italian readers. So having a, an organization like the Trust Project to help point to sources for our consumers is, is a wonderful thing.
Well, I think, Brian, I think we're proud to say that the UK column does not have a T on it. Uh, <laughs> we are very proud about that. But it just shows you the, the way the organisations are now working. They're all grouped together. They've become global news leaders. You can trust them because they say you can trust them. And, of course, they're going to print whatever whatever propaganda they want to. Right, but uh, the one thing I wanted to pick out of that, the first person said it's about a conversation, not a lecture. And I'm thinking to myself, well, hold on a second. In order to have a conversation, you've got to have different views uh, being heard and, you know, well, I think that's discussion old... about those. But, but is, that, is, is that just me being nostalgic? Yeah, I think that's an old-fashioned view, Mike. Right, but okay. uh, let's, let's just jump back to what they say about themselves on the website. Trust matters. In a confusing world flooded with misinformation, principled journalism must step forward and earn public trust. And then it says our mission to amplify journalism's commitment to transparency, accuracy, inclusion and fairness so that the public can make informed news choices. So if you're going to make an informed news choice, um, you've got to know really what's happening. You're not going to go and look at one source because it just tells you one line. So the hypocrisy coming in here because they've no intention of telling you what's what both sides of the argument are for vaccines. And I just wanted to say for the eagle-eyed people that looked at the little clip, it didn't appear that the BBC was in it, but I assure you the BBC is now fully in bed with this organisation. And if our viewers might like to do something interesting, this is Sally Learman, the chief executive from the Trust Project. She just started it, as you do, and yeah. it's now a global organisation and expanding because they're all global news leaders. Uh, here she is. Uh, there is a telephone number, but there's an email address. And I thought it could be quite interesting to see whether the Daily Mirror has actually met their independence objectives. Um, so maybe the Trust Project could be challenged there. Yes. Now, a week or so ago, we put up the, uh, the latest statistics on hospital daily occupancy. That's now a week old now, of course. Uh, and you can see that uh, occupancy went from around 50,000 uh, beds filled in April last year uh, to just, well, absolute full capacity in uh, January and February this year. And in fact, April and May, uh, as we move closer in uh, on this, is hospitals at full capacity in England, uh, right across the country, it seems. I understand there's some people saying that uh, one or two local hospitals aren't at full capacity, but nonetheless, this is the English picture. Um, so the question is why, and uh, of course we've been asking, is this a backlog in treatment that's causing this, or is perhaps uh, adverse vaccine reactions? Maybe it's both. We don't know exactly what's going on. Um, but uh, maybe this gives us one part of the picture anyway. This is uh, an organization called Collateral Global, uh, and uh, there's some very eminent uh, scientists and professors in here, including Carl Hennigan uh, from the uh, Center for Evidence-Based Medicine at Oxford University. Um, and they have just produced a report, uh, and this is a, a meta-analysis really of uh, various scientific papers, scientific studies on the impact of COVID-19 first wave restrictions on cancer care, and this is globally. Uh, so this has been produced by Carl Hannigan, uh, also by John uh, Brassi and uh, Tom Jefferson. Um, and uh, so let's just have a look at the some of the, the table of conclusions. I'm just going to pick uh, uh, three or four uh, examples uh, here uh, showing how cancer care has suffered in the UK. The, they, the table has many, many more examples from all around the world. 
but for example, this uh, paper was uh, uh, published uh, in 2021, uh, and it's basically saying cancer diagnosis in the Southeast London Cancer Alliance Network encompassed three NHS trusts during the first wave of the COVID-19 pandemic compared with the stage of diagnosis of cancer patients presenting before the pandemic across several tumour types and showing that uh, uh, significantly lower levels of uh, um, lower levels of, of uh, uh, medical care being given to people with cancer. In that study, here's another study, uh, UK-based based study on breast cancer, uh, referrals for suspected breast cancer down uh, 28% in this study, uh, and the number of patients who received the first treatment for a breast cancer diagnosis was 16% lower uh, as a result of the uh, first wave of COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, another paper here uh, on uh, 35,478 endoscopy procedures performed in the pre-COVID period. Uh, activity in the COVID impact period reduced to 12% of pre-COVID levels at its low point. Activity was 5%, recovered to 20% uh, during the study. Uh, the weekly number of cancers detected decreased by 58% of the proportion of missing cancers ranged from 19% to 72%. This is quite a staggering picture that's being built here because it's basically saying that cancer patients have been effectively ignored by the NHS uh, during the first wave of restrictions. Uh, this is another one uh, on eye cancers. Uh, referral numbers in confirmed uh, melanoma cause, uh, cases reduced uh, to, 100, to 120 fewer diagnosed uveal melanoma cases than the previous two years, a reduction in referral numbers by 42%, uh, and confirmed uveal melanoma cases declined by 43%. Uh, there was more advanced disease presenting to the services in the four months following the lockdown. So that seems to be part of the picture at the very least. People not getting the treatment that they should have been getting in the previous 14 months. Uh, now, of course, becoming much more acute cases uh, and uh, occupying hospital beds. But then there's the question of whether people are getting referrals to hospital in the first place or have been and the behaviour of GPs. Um, so this is uh, the British Medical Association um, and they've headlined this uh, unsustainable, unsafe and unfair general practice in, cancer, in crisis. And what they're saying is GPs and practices are under unprecedented pressure to delivering a far greater number of consultations with almost 5 million more appointments in March than they did the month before and nearly 4 million more than they did the same month two years ago. This is not just due to the serious impact of COVID-19 pandemic, but also the major scale of the NHS backlog with millions more waiting for treatment combined with falling numbers of GPs relative to the growing population, despite government pledges to address this. On top of this, this GPs and their teams are working incredibly hard to deliver the hugely impressive COVID vaccination program quickly and effectively. And it's that sentence which I think gets to the point here. This is the reason why actually there's a disparity between what GPs say they're delivering and what people uh, are saying is their experience trying to get an appointment with, appointment with, with GPs. So uh, the fact is GPs have been involved in the rollout of the vaccination program from the beginning. And as a result, they're not offering the same level of service or the level of service that people expect for everything else. Uh, and here's another headline, GPs to be paid extra to reach vulnerable housebound as vaccine rollout pushes on. Now, not all GPs were prepared 
uh, to get involved in the COVID vaccine rollout scheme, some GP surgery saying that they already had a challenging enough workload and they weren't prepared to get involved in this. But many, many other GP surgeries have. And I think the impact is absolutely clear. Uh, in the meantime, Public Health England has been demanding that GPs provide e-consultation ability. Uh, and uh, well, the GPs, in fact, saying, uh, well, no, actually, we're not obliged to do this yet. Uh, they're saying before the pandemic, as part of the 2019 GP contract deal, uh, the uh, GPs or the, the Public Health England agreed that it would eventually become contractual for practices to offer online consultations during core hours. This agreement has not been added to the contractual regulation, so is not currently a contractual requirement. So the GPs are pushing back as hard as they can on even that uh, aspect of it. But just, you know, and, and I'm not suggesting that e-consultations are the way forward. They're absolutely not because people are not being diagnosed properly as a result of e-consultations. But GP surgeries so tied up with the vaccination program at the moment, they're not providing the level of care that's required for or, or expected uh, the type that we've seen in the past uh, and they're not even prepared to uh, to provide uh, the level of, of e-consultations that Public Health England is attempting to persuade them to do. That's the wrong way to go so I'm not going to criticise them too much for that but uh, I think we're seeing the effect of that in the hospital occupancy. And we are we're reporting on this, Mike, but in general, it's not being reported on in any detail. There's no analysis of what's actually going on in the NHS and who these patients are that are now filling the hospitals. What is actually wrong with them and why are they now flocking to the NHS? A lot of questions to be answered. Um, OK, if you like what the UK column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Um, and uh, also do share our material on the platforms as you see them. Uh, Twitter, Facebook, Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey, we're on all of these. Right, okay, well another thank you, well several thank yous, people sending in information. Uh, this was a, an email sent to us and I think ultimately there'll be some intakes of breath. This was on Good Morning TV this morning. How is this allowed? I feel this was encouraged by the government 100% I've been in tears since seeing it as this will cause so much more division. I was in a cafe at a garden centre near Wellington just off the motorway on Saturday. Two quite well-to-do ladies were sat next to me loudly discussing how they believe that all unvaccinated should be put in prison camps immediately. These were retired ladies who lunch in their 60s. I had to move away. My husband very quickly guided me to another table. The lady serving us could see how distressed I was and asked why. When I told her, her response was, well, I, I would too like to see everybody vaccinated. I was gobsmacked. We're up against Satan himself. I truly don't know where to turn other than to UK column. You're my sanctuary and place of sanity. Now, what was it that caused this lady to react like this? Well, it was this. Uh, so here we are. Uh, we've got Good Morning Britain with a banner on screen. And in case you can't quite make it out, let's blow up the banner. Uh, it says coronavirus pandemic time to ditch unvaccinated friends, question mark. And I think this is quite right that this is vicious um, applied psychology, which is going to drive family members against each other, friends, community members. So utterly 
disgusting reporting by Good Morning Britain. They need to be brought to book for this because you can see the upset that it's, it's uh, caused in the people that have seen it. And we've had a lot of emails about this particular uh, footage from Good Morning Britain. Well, we've also had other emails. This is one who says, uh, my friend's wife works as a nurse in the NHS. She's been told by management that all hospitals are expected to be swamped from August with all annual leave cancelled. So I think that's a very, uh, very interesting statement. If that is correct, if other people out there serving in the NHS can tell us, that would be brilliant. There's also a reference to a book, Dissolving Illusions. I have not read the book, so I can't recommend it myself. Um, but uh, the uh, Stephen who sent in the email is saying, have a look at that uh, book as well. Uh, what have we got here? We've got uh, this one, which is essentially about vaccine harassment. Hi, Brian. I was contacted by work in December twice by Human Resources at the weekend. Messages left. I was off sick with anxiety. I told my manager I wanted no calls. I had four letters, two from GPs saying if they did not hear from me, they would put me down as declined a vaccine. I've had 17 texts. So this is this is not uncommon. Somebody talking about a regime of bullying uh, to get them to succumb to a vaccine when they've got lots of good reasons to say no. And in any case, they're feeling very stressed. More positive note, somebody uh, sent in a link through to this, a stand in the park. Um, now grateful for a bit more information from people as to what this organisation is up to, but essentially meetings to get people to talk about what's going on and to challenge it, which uh, seems to be a very positive thing. Yeah. Um, okay. Now, uh, on Friday's programme, we mentioned this book, uh, A Road to Kill the Bill, uh, and uh, this written by experienced environmental campaigner Joe Boyd. Uh, Joe, of course, as we mentioned on Friday, was a stalwart of the uh, anti-fracking campaign uh, and a great friend of Ian R. Crane. Uh, and along, along with uh, Joe Corey, as we mentioned, he led the court challenge against Ineos who'd been attempting to uh, prevent protest uh, at their fracking sites uh, by effectively imposing uh, protest pens. Uh, yesterday, um, I spoke to Joe via Skype and uh, well, I started off by asking about the bill which the book is named after. Um, so uh, have a listen to this. So it's the police, the police uh, crime sentencing and courts bill. Uh, so that came out the second reading in March. Now, the Labour Party were going to abstain on abstain on this uh, second reading, but the Sarah Everton case took place in, in Clapham Common, and there was an outcry, and they've done a U-turn. And they voted against it. But just before this vote came came up in the House of Commons, I mean, all the NGOs, all the petition organisations, just about everyone was silent on the matter. They weren't campaigning against the bill. It was almost as if they were waiting for the Labour Party to give them the green light, uh, which they did. But it shows that they were prepared to let it go through. Initially, And this bill is going to have a chilling effect on our right to protest. And of course, we can't see this bill uh, in its uh, as a standalone item. It goes with the previous bill, which uh, escapes me at the moment, which effectively legalised uh, the police to break the law by getting involved in protest organisations and other organisations, legalised law-breaking by not just the police, but a whole range of government agencies. But also on top of that, the, uh, the online safety bill, 
which is going to have this chilling effect on freedom of speech online. So we're not going to be able to have freedom of speech on the streets. We're not allowed to be able to protest. We're not allowed to be able to protest or have freedom of speech online. And the government has made it legal for uh, various agencies to commit acts of illegality uh, in order to deal with uh, protest groups. That, that's right, yeah. That's the, that's the, yeah. That's the COVID Human Intelligence Services Act 2021 got, got its royal assent in March this year. Uh, it actually allows the state to murder, actually. That's, 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 that's the, the draconianness of it. Uh, and it actually it links, it links to this bill, the police bill, because what you can have, actually have you, can have, you can have intelligence service, service agents leading the movements however they want, because legally they can do it. And so all, you, all you're left with is protest from A to B, which is managed. If we're all tied into an A to B protest, then the only thing that will come from it is the governments will decide on who can, who can, who can march and who can't march. Uh, so if it suits a government, government's agenda, that's fine, because that's what's been happening with the anti-flacker movement, managed protest from the climate agents, working with the police, working with the intelligence services, which has got us to this point. And that's that's what the book, the real story of the book, although it's my my journey of eight or nine years of my life, a little bit before in the first chapter, but the rest of the book is about what I uncover. And what I uncover is is agents working with intelligence services. This could go right up to the Home Office, uh, and no one's talking about it. And actually, we've got the Home Office already working with agents to shut down protest already. Then it's no surprise of the COVID Human Intelligence Services Act. It's almost as if it's been a trial run for years of how they can deal with this. And one of the main police officers involved with the anti-fracking, a guy called Mark Roberts, he was the, uh, he was the lead on uh, public order policing in the northwest of England. He actually moved to South Yorkshire Police in 2017, and he became part of the National Police Chiefs Council uh, lead on guidance on covert intelligence. So he, this guy's probably read some of this cheers up, that's already gone through. So it's not coincidental that we're getting attacked from all angles at the same time. Uh, we just need to be careful of... Uh, everyone should be working together on this. You know, it seems from the bill that you're getting a lot of people putting Black Lives Matter in with this bill of the police, the police and crime bill. But actually, to see the Dick and uh, Metropolitan Police and uh, Theresa May, they spoke about this bill being much needed powers six months before Black Lives Matter even started. So this is the work of this is the work of the Green movement and the agents working alongside them. You obviously uh, had a pretty prominent role within the anti-fracking movement. You took some pretty significant court cases. You've been fighting this type of limitation of of protest, the right to protest, for a long time. And uh, you know the, the one of the the, the really big uh, fracking-related cases was was uh, the the fact that they were attempting to, um, or at least the fracking companies were attempting to put people into protest pens. Um, we're actually Sorry? we're actually seeing this this year with the G7 that's coming up next month. Uh, the the, uh, the protest pen for that is in Plymouth, 150 miles away from the actual event. So well, you know you know if we allow this to stand, if we're not allowed to protest where we wish to protest, if we are 
uh, allowing ourselves to see the, the, uh, the, the right of freedom of assembly anywhere at any time to be whittled away by government, we are, we are <laughs> heading in a very dangerous direction. One of the points to try to put out in the book is the state itself has tried to do this through the civil courts, and that might be, that might be linked with neoliberalism, where the state has a hands-off approach. And so it's up to businesses to, to sort of protect themselves. And they've tried to do that through the civil courts. When, when I was successful at the Court of Appeal, that stopped that route. But if you take, take, we take it into a picture of where we're at now, we'd, we'd have all these pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical com companies, they'd be going and getting injunctions from the High Court because they'd be saying there's an imminent threat because of fake news or whatever they bring up. Uh, and so, yeah, if we get to the point where this bill passes through, it is end the protest because they'll just, they'll just squash any protest at all. And I think... The link I seen with Extinction Rebellion, it, it was the links all the way through happened. It's it's a problem reaction solution. So every time we were successful, including the pen, they came up with another plan. Some of these were strategic security services, uh, intelligence services, and then they and then they they'd react to it. And when I was successful at the Court of Appeal, it was literally within a week, or ten days, 12, 12 days, but it was six days after. The, the judgment was handed down, but I, I knew about it a week before, that they declared they were going to shut four bridges in London Extinction Rebellion. And if, if I was unsuccessful at the Court of Appeal, we would already be in a situation already where a citywide injunction would be in place. We mm. might not have this bill because they'd already have the legislation, but because yeah. they failed now in the civil route, this is the attack. This is the attack through the statute books. I think uh, the thing that worries me most about this, uh, you, you... You've mentioned this already. Is the fact that because this bill, the sort of kill the bill brand, has been so closely associated with Black Lives Matter and and that particular and Extinction Rebellion in particular, um, yeah. that effect, what that effectively has done is to remove half the potential protesters from the from the argument because so, because some sections of of. Uh, the, the people that are actively protesting on various subjects at the moment won't, won't want to associate themselves with Black Lives Matter and with, uh, with Extinction Rebellion. No, I agree. I, we, have, we, have to, we have to work together. But the, pro the problem that we have, Mike, is these agents at the top of these, of these organisations, they're taking it a certain way. I'd say 95% 95, 95 of the people who campaign against Kill the Bill have no idea of what these people are at the top. And the same with Black Lives Matter. This isn't. This isn't. These aren't grass. These aren't grassroots protests. They seem they're grassroots protests, but at the very top of them, they're not. These are. These are well-trained agents of the state, yeah. leading it a certain way. And so, what we the message we have to get across is, we have to say to these people within these movements, we're all on the same sheet. But like, who are you following? Who are you following? Do you know who you're following? Do you know what? Do you know their history? Do you know any of it? We need to get back to a situation of personal sovereignty. People want to go and protest. Personally, go and protest. But don't be going protesting under a banner or because this person has told you in some sort of consensus meeting that, like, this is the way to do it. Because, you know, for 20 years in this country, and it goes right back to the nuclear industry, like, just at the start of 
the start of this century. We've, we, we have what we call the discourse of consensus and cooperation. And it, it initiated with the nuclear industry, then it's fed into all energy industry, and now it's right across the board. And so if you look, take a, if you take the Occupy example, when you go and see an Occupy gathering in, in Palmer Square or something like that, there's people strategically placed all over the crowd with, with their jazz hands. And that's the consensus. So pe the rest of the people in the crowd just go along with these people and they don't even know who they are. They may, have only, they may have only just turned up to that protest the first day and they agree with them. And so this has been talked about for many years about like, you know, controlled opposition and stuff like that. And people need to educate themselves on it and take back their own personal sovereignty because when, when all's said and done, it comes down to us as an individual to stop these things and to do to do what we can the most. In this instance, I've chose to write a book because I feel I can't do it on social media because it gets censored, as you, you know how bad the censoring is right now. So th there's no real way you can get a message out apart from writing a book because people can read the book and they can read substantial evidence in a day of, of where we are, what I learned in eight years. And, and so people need to pick up the book. They need to read it. They need to understand what's actually happening and and, and be able to think for themselves and not be drawn in by someone else. This needs to get out into the MPs. They need to have, they need to be questioning on the back benches and saying, hang on, you know, my my children in 10 years' time, 15 years' time, are going to see the impacts of this, of this, of this policy and, and how we've got it. Because this hasn't just this hasn't just come about. This has been a well-laid-out plan for the best part of a decade at least. And now this is their final throw of the dice. And so we have to stop it because there isn't any turning back because it's been there's been too much money and too much resources thrown at it, you know what I mean? So some important points there, Mike. And just come back to Saturday, one of the key um, things about the demonstration in London on Saturday was the knowledge in the crowd. The crowd were all well informed. They knew why they were there. And uh, the points being raised here about demonstrations where there's a controlling element and who are those people. And yeah. you need to understand that. That is really important. It, it is indeed. And, and of course, the thing about the demonstration that happened on, on Saturday and, and whatever future ones, there are multiple groups involved with these. It's not a hierarchical structure. It's not there are there isn't yeah. a, a man at the top or a group of people at the top that are uh, pushing forward a, a consensus. So um, and this was the point of the, the fracking campaign and this is something that Ian Crane worked very, very hard to try to get across to people. Don't put your faith in the likes of, in the, in the case of fracking, Friends of the Earth or Greenpeace or some of these big uh, organizations because they are co-opted and they will not do what uh, you think they're going to do. You've got to do things at a local level, uh, at a, on a personal level uh, and, uh, and organize amongst smaller groups uh, so that yeah. uh, there's a better chance of, uh, of making progress. Uh, but uh, Joe's book, I strongly recommend it. I'm halfway through reading it at the moment. Uh, and as he says, it is mainly about um, his experience of some of these larger organizations and how they have been co-opted uh, by the intelligence services, by the police. Uh, that has now been legalized, although it was illegal in the past for them to do it in the way that they did. It's now been legalized. Um, and uh, so, you know, we know that this type of activity uh, continues. 
so I do recommend that people read that. Now, uh, let's uh, move on to this. This is an article published on the uh, UK Column website in 2013 called Bilderberg 2013, uh, the birth of a global tax system. Now, the first thing to note here is there's an error message at the top, and of course, that's because uh, the YouTube video that was included in this uh, article is no longer there. Uh, now, we're going to uh, expect to have all the YouTube uh, videos, the videos that YouTube took down, uh, back up on the website tomorrow, um, but we'll uh, hopefully have a further announcement about that on Friday. But the key point here was that uh, we were highlighting in 2013 that this was a key uh, point, uh, policy area that Bilderberg at that time was looking at. Um, well, it has taken them a little bit longer than expected perhaps to move forward with it, and perhaps Donald Trump had something to do that. But uh, now in that little pre-recorded video that we showed uh, with Joe, I unfortunately said uh, that the G7 was next month. Of course, it's next week. Uh, that was a, a mistake by, on my part. But uh, uh, Joe Biden is expected to be there, and he has put forward a proposal. It's on the table for a global corporation tax regime. So it's taken them a few years to get to it, but they always get to it. And uh, so uh, Joe Biden's suggesting uh, that really they need a global level of corporation tax to avoid these nasty corporations. Uh, you know, domiciling themselves offshore and not paying uh, local governments uh, the respective corporation tax. Um, so uh, this has come with a whole bunch of activity from a whole bunch of different organizations. So let me introduce you to a new one. This is uh, EU Tax Observatory. It's an NGO. They say that they're a new independent research organization. That's good. Uh, and they are there to uh, provide the, the computer models that are going to decide, help them decide what this tax level should be and which companies are avoiding corporation tax. So, for example, uh, BP, uh, headquartered in the UK, uh, these guys are claiming that BP's corporate tax bill would increase uh, based on the rate of 21% that's being uh, suggested. Uh, so BP's corporation tax would increase by 484.9 million euros. And Barclays would increase by 911 million euros a year and HSBCs by 4.2 billion euros. Um, so, but who is this organization, EU Tax Observatory? Uh, well, the, it's funded by the European Union. Uh, it's a tax observatory will support EU policymaking through cutting edge research analysis and data sharing. So they are, as you can see, Brian, completely independent. <laughs> the observatory will be fully independent, but it's funded by the European Union. Yes. It's, yeah, yes, remarkable. But it does Encouraging, though. Encouraging, but, but it doesn't end there, because uh, guess who else is involved in this? Well, of course, the World Economic Forum. Uh, and uh, they're holding today uh, an event called the Jobs Reset Summit. And the main focus of that is a global tax agenda. So there you go. That's what's going on. Um, but uh, you heard it here first because uh, we reported on it in 2013. Now, uh, the, the earlier video from uh, the uh, protest march on Saturday was talking about India and food in India. And of course, we've been highlighting the fact that the Green New Deal uh, is making sure that uh, Britain becomes less and less food independent. We're only about 60% food independent as we are, uh, but we're going to have to be less food independent. So the latest uh, news from the Somerset levels is that uh, Natural England has downgraded the environmental condition of the Somerset levels uh, to 
uh, what are they calling it? Unfavorable declining is the category that it now is. Uh, this is as a result of uh, phosphate levels in the water, which is uh, creating uh, algae and so on. Um, and uh, of course, they're blaming this, well, who? They're blaming it on agricultural activities, first of all. And second, secondarily, water industry discharges. Now, I would suggest that uh, the likelihood is here uh, that water industry discharges from sewage plants and so on are much more like uh, are contributing much more to this than than farming activity because uh, farming standards today uh, are pretty much uh, managing phosphate levels uh, so but the focus from the press release yeah. is on the farmers once again uh, and uh, so it looks like uh, more pressure on them to stop growing food but sticking with the new green deal let's just remind ourselves what uh, mark carney said a couple of years ago companies that don't adapt including Companies in the financial system will go bankrupt without question. Um, so Alex Sharma then, who of course is the president of the COP26, which is going to be taking place in Glasgow uh, in uh, October, November time, uh, he was speaking uh, to the first Net Zero Pension Summit, uh, which is, was hosted yesterday by Make My, Money Matter, uh, Make My Money Matter. And this is what he had to say. When the countries of the world signed the Paris Agreement in 2015, they committed to limit, to limit global temperature rises to well below two degrees. But since that agreement was signed, the world has not done enough. So COP26, the United Nations Climate Conference that will be held in Glasgow in November, uh, will, must be the moment that every country and every part of society embraces their responsibility to protect our precious planet. Uh, 160 financial firms have signed up to the Glasgow Finance, Financial Alliance for Net Zero. Uh, committing to reach net zero uh, by 2050 at the latest and robust targets based on the science, allegedly, uh, to get there. But of course, this is what it's about. It's about finance. It's not about anything else. Uh, and uh, then Alex Sharma was speaking again yesterday, uh, this time at the first day of the May-June 2021 UN Climate Change Conference uh, subsidiary body sessions. Uh, and again, he was highlighting the fact that this is really about finance because he's, he was talking about agreements that mobilize finance and agreements that encourage cooperation across borders and across society to deliver against the goals of the planet uh, of the Paris Agreement. Sorry, but it is all uh, about finance, Brian. That's really what this is uh, is to do with. Becoming more and more clear that that's the driver, and of course, with everything going on in the world at the moment, if we are to believe the COVID nineteen pandemic, the bank's largely silent. And I take that, that they're very happy with progress of the pandemic and the vaccine policy, because you could be sure if they weren't happy, we'd have wall-to-wall -wall coverage. So I think they're in the background rubbing their hands as everything is moving along to their entire satisfaction. Yeah, we'll leave it there. I think we probably should. Uh, well, as promised, just before we go, we have to mention the BBC, because last night, a surprise delivery uh, arrived and in the package uh, were a number of books. What were the books? Well, uh, I'll bring some of them on <clears throat> screen because four books all about the BBC and all attacking the BBC from a number of different angles, all uh, perfectly reasonable places to start. So this was the BBC Myth of a Public Service by a gentleman called, called Tom Mills. I've got a second one here called The Noble Liar. And that, the author of this one is Robin Aitken. 
And of course, this is particularly interesting because um, Robin Aitken worked for the BBC for a period of time. Uh, but on it goes, BBC Brainwashing Britain. Uh, that's a pretty chunky book, as you can see. And the author for that one is David Sedgwick. And the fourth one is also by David Sedgwick, and it's called The Fake News Factory. Um, so I'm going to say a very big thank you to the anonymous person that sent the package. I've had a, a quick look at these books very early this morning, and I have to say I can tell there's a huge amount of information in them um, and some very, very good um, in-depth analysis as to what the BBC really is and what it's attempting to do. So I suppose I should make a promise to um, read these books as soon as I can, and I shall report back on the, the contents. But I wonder what sort of organisation would it would be that could have uh, three authors come up with, um, what is that, a good six inches of uh, research to say that your organisation is completely unsuitable and unfit for purpose. So that's quite an accolade for the BBC. Thanks for the books. We'll leave it there. Are we doing an extra? No, no, we're not. I'm sorry, I do apologise. No, we're, we're okay. not doing an extra today, but we'll be back at, as usual, 1pm on Friday. Uh, an interesting news from UK Column today. We'll leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us. Bye-bye.